Well, as always, I hope you all have had a wonderful week, been able to enjoy the, the few days of decent weather that we had. Of course, the heat had to return again, but Kevin and I were talking last week, and if you stop and think about it, in terms of Sundays, we probably have about eight or nine Sundays until the furnaces come on and we're in the end of October. So fall and winter are around the corner. Best time of year, right? <laughs> Depends on who you're asking. <clears throat> but as you're outside and as you're in enjoying the weather, whether you're working or walking or hiking. I know we've talked about this before, how when I'm in those moments, I like to sit and reflect back on life, like to think about the way that Christ has blessed me, the way that I can see him moving in my life, the way I can see him moving in the lives of others. But sometimes there's also reflection upon certain circumstances that you may be facing and how you handle them now compared to how you would have handled them 10 or 15 years ago before Christ was in our heart, before he came into us and cleansed us. Now, the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? If we are a temple of the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ has come and cleansed us, is that something that we continue to focus on? Now keep that in mind that we are a temple of the Spirit as we read about Jesus going in and cleansing the temple in John chapter 2. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 12 through 22. But first, a little bit of a reminder. I know that every time we start, we review a little bit about John and some of the things he said prior. Now, remember the creator aspect. In John 1, 3, it states that through him all things were made. And we talked about how the first sign is happening in Cana, and there's the circle of Cana, as we talked about. You start with the first sign in chapter 2, of turning the water into wine, and then you go through all these brand new creations until in the end of chapter 4, the second sign happens again at Cana. And we talked about the new creations being the water into wine, the temple becoming a new temple, then we talked about the new birth, and also talking about the new way of worship with the Samaritan woman at the well. And also to take notice that all these new types of creation were happening in places and things that were significantly just culturally Jewish. We talked about a Jewish wedding, and then we talked about the temple. Then we talked about Nicodemus being a rabbi and how the Samaritan woman is being addressed at the well of Jacob. So we have the full circle happening. And then also notice that the reason why Christ is at the temple today is because it is the time of Passover. Now, Passover is kind of unique in the Gospel of John because there's three of them. There's one in chapter 2, there's one in chapter 6, and there's one in chapter 13. So he celebrates the Passover at the beginning, the middle, and the end of his ministry. And when you read the other uh, the other Gospels, it's kind of hard sometimes to tell how long of a time period Christ's ministry is taking. So a lot of historians and theologians, one of the main sources is John because he mentions three, so we know that it was over a course of at least three years. But also notice that while Christ is here, he is the example of perfection and a perfect walk with the Father because he is always observing the law. He is observing the feast, the festivals, the Passover. He's always living within the law. He's never going against it. And it is true at Passover, it never talks about him going to the temple to make a sacrifice because he is sinless, so he would not need to make one. But he does go to study and to teach and to do all things as one should. So keeping all this in mind, John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22 
We're going to start in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, I took, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now we can see that the main event happening here is Jesus going into the temple and running out the money changers and cleansing it as it is called. But what exactly was the temple? This is something that's important for us to understand. It's kind of the history of the temple, its construction, and what it was for, and why Christ is referring to himself as the new temple. Well, the temple was a place that was made to house the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites were wandering, and they had the tabernacle, and the Ark of the Covenant was being kept inside of it. And so eventually, David decided that it needed to be in a permanent spot in the temple. But Solomon is the one who ended up building the temple. So it was a place to house the Ark of the Covenant. Now, one thing that I came across when I was looking and researching about the temple was 1 Kings 6-7. And this is a verse that I had never really, I don't know if it never stuck out or what, but this is how it reads. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone finished at the quarry, and neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool was heard in the house while it was being built. Now think about that for a second. The temple was constructed in silence. That is the type of reverence that King Solomon had for this. It was constructed and quarried and fit and prefabricated off-site, and then it was put together without any noise in the place where it was intended to be. But then when you go beyond that to its its eventual finish, and in Second Chronicles chapter 5 and 6, you can read the prayer of dedication that comes from King Solomon. You can see that the Lord is pleased with this because at the prayer of dedication, a pillar of fire comes from heaven and consumes the offering that Solomon had put on the altar in front of it. And then on top of that, a cloud came, a cloud that contained the glory of God, and it filled the temple, and it was so strong with the glory of God that the priests could not even stand within it. They had to leave the temple. And it states that the people were making so many sacrifices that they could not be counted, and the prayer was that the Lord would look favorably upon this place and all who came to it, all who desired to be within his presence. And so that is what the temple was. It was a place for Jews to come and to repent and to be made pure from sacrifice so that they could be within the presence of the Lord. And in Second Chronicles chapter 2, Solomon is sending word to King Haram, the king of Tyre, asking him to deal with him fairly as he did his father David. 
And he's explaining to him that he is trying to build a temple for the living God to house the Ark of the Covenant. But Solomon even understands when he is planning this temple, because it states in verse 6, But who is able to build a house for him, since the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him? And who am I that I should build a house for him, except to burn incense before him? So this was never about containing God. This was never uh, a pagan temple where the God would be here and you would go. This was a place for him to look favorably upon and a place for him to come to allow himself to be approached by those who would come with a proper heart and a heart of sacrifice. Now keep these things in mind of the temple when we think about the temple and why Christ is going in it, but also why he is referring to himself as the temple. Because Jesus calling himself the temple in verse 19, there are some similarities there between the temple of the Old Testament and the temple, the second temple that he was in, and Christ himself. Now that may be a a sermon that Dwayne could do way better with than me, but one of the things is that the temple was built in silence. Well, Christ came and was born in a manger on a silent night, as the song says. But, but there's all these different ways that you can see the similarities. And the main one is that just as through the temple you would be in the presence of God, so also through Christ we approach God and we are able to commune with him. Now, when you read on further in the Gospel of John, John 4:21, the woman at the well is asking him, how do we worship? What is this way to worship? And Jesus answers him, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But John Piper points to that moment and states that this is crucial in understanding why Jesus is calling himself the temple. Because he is taking worship from being geographical to spiritual. We no longer have to go to the temple mount or to a certain altar or do all these certain customs. We go through him. All men of all nations and all creed can come before the Father because Christ is the temple. Now, also in verse 21 and 22, there's a uniqueness happening here with the author because he's kind of he's breaking the fourth wall, I guess you'll call it. He's he's speaking of the temple and what Christ was saying, and then he kind of stops and says, he's pointing to his body. And then in verse 22, he stops and says, they had to look backwards to understand what he was talking about. Now, what's happening here is, we talked about how John talks about signs, and he says this was a sign, and he wants you to go back and re-examine the story so you can understand what is happening and why this is a sign of the authority of Christ. But there are certain times where John stops And like looks up and looks at the reader and tells them, hey, this is pointing to this. It's almost like in a movie where you have two characters talking to each other and then time freezes. One stops and faces the camera and says something about what's happening. Then they turn back and the story begins again. That is what is happening here. But it's it's interesting that in this moment. It is mentioned that this is what is referring to the crucifixion because it hasn't happened yet. So the fact that he is pointing you towards that means that he is under the assumption that whoever is reading this, we at least have some type of knowledge of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And thus he is sitting here explaining as we go towards that everything that is happening. And we know that we're beginning to go towards that aggressively within the gospel, because if you count, we're only 19 verses away from John 3.16. 
So we are closely approaching the purpose of the ministry of Christ and him teaching us himself. But also it is it is interesting to understand that the disciples had to reflect back on this moment to understand what he was saying. Now, last week, when we were talking about the, the water being turned into wine, we said that we often do not reflect on the works that Christ does in our lives that we are not aware of. We often don't ever think about the way Christ works that we're not aware of. But in this, just as the disciples, we have to ask ourselves, how many times do we praise God when we come to the sudden realization that something happened for a purpose days ago, months ago, years ago? There are times where Christ works in our lives and we cannot immediately understand what was happening. And so the disciples who walked with him also had to reflect back on his works as well. But even though they had to reflect back to understand, there was also an immediate realization of what was going on here. Because it says that the words zeal for your house consumes me made them reflect back on what was happening. Now, that's coming from Psalm 69, verse 9, King David. Now, it is true that Solomon built the temple. But as we stated earlier, the desire for the temple to be built came from King David. David wanted there to be a place for the people to come before the presence of God. So it wasn't just this one verse that was making them reflect back on on David. It was the whole situation. Everything that Christ was doing now was mirroring David in those moments. And we know that David wanted this with all of his heart because in 1 Chronicles 17.1, David is talking to Nathan. And to quote David here, he states, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Here I am, a man living in a house of cedar, and the ark is in a tent. This cannot be. And so he goes and he tells Nathan his desire to build a temple, and Nathan says that it is well. And then if you continue to read there in First Chronicles, you'll see that the Lord comes to Nathan and says that David cannot build it because he is a man of war and there is blood on his hands, and that his son Solomon will have to, but he also tells him, that through him there will be an eternal kingdom established. So David wanted to build a temple for all peoples to be able to come before the Lord, and his son built the physical temple, but then through his line, the other temple, Christ, came. So it's interesting how he wanted that desire, and the Lord answered that in multiple ways when you sit and you look at the story of Christ. But remember the creator aspect as well. We talked about how John is constantly referencing us back to that. Now, many theologians state that when you read about the cleansing of the temple, John is actually pointing us back to the beginning of Genesis. The way he's writing this, he is pointing us back to the Garden of Eden. Now, what was the Garden of Eden? Well, the Garden of Eden was paradise, and it was beautiful, and it was a place where, more importantly, man could walk with God and commune with him. And that is what the temple was as well. It was a place that was intended for man to come before the presence of God and to commune with him. But just as sin had entered into the garden, the creator came and had to drive mankind out. So also sin had entered into the temple and had tainted it with corruption, with money changers, with people that were. Sometimes you would bring a, a blemish free lamb or something to sacrifice and you would get there and there would be a reason why they wouldn't allow you to use yours. So you had to buy theirs. They were constantly taking advantage of the fact that a sacrifice had to be made, and it was a place of commerce. And so, once again, the Creator goes in, and He drives out mankind because sin had tainted that 
which was intended to be good. Now, there's also a power display here that Christ is giving us. And sometimes I think in our minds, we think about a, like a church or something. And Jesus goes in and he grabs the cords off the ground that the cattle were tied up with. And he begins driving people out. But that is not at all what was happening. The temple was massive. It was absolutely massive. Now, Josephus states that during the time of the Passover in this time, if you go off the number of sacrifices, there was about two and a half million people that would come to Jerusalem. Now, most historians think that's not the right way to do it because people would make multiple sacrifices. So it's probably closer to one to one and a half million. But whatever the number was, there would be thousands of animals and thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in the courtyard and surrounding the temple at that time. Now, John MacArthur points out the historian Josephus, and you've heard Dwayne and a few others of us mention him, and he's a Jewish historian at the time. Now, he states that on the eastern end of the second wall of the temple, there was a Roman fort, and this fort had soldiers in it, and the Romans would sit and they would look down into the courtyard, and if anything would go awry, they would come down and send a garrison, and they would break everything up and restore order. Because the temple was such a focal point, of Jerusalem at the time that they had to make sure order was kept in it. So now imagine being a Roman soldier. You're sitting up there. It's Passover. Spear in hand, maybe a shield. And you look down in a court and there's this guy screaming. And he starts turning tables over. And he starts confronting people. And you're sitting up there in your fort and you're watching this this whole time. Maybe you elbow the guy next to you. And then you start to notice that no one's stopping him. And he doesn't have a weapon. And the leaders are confronting him and he's yelling at them. And he's telling them that this is my father's house. And you are corrupting it. And he's yelling all these things. And eventually you look down and the entire place is cleared out. And it's just that one guy standing in the middle. Now what are you going to think when you guys are sitting there looking down at that? And then think about as time continues and you're on your patrol And you see or you hear of him healing people. And then we see the Romans begin to be woven into the story of Christ. We see the centurion that comes before him and asks that his slave be healed. And we see the centurion at the cross declares, surely this is the son of God. And the ones who are guarding the tomb and how they were paid by the Jewish authority to not say anything after the resurrection. Imagine the power that was displayed in this moment because it is coming from the complete opposite spectrum of the characteristics of Christ. This display of power was not coming from love and empathy and a desire to bring joy. This was coming from anger and wrath. Anger and wrath. Because he had to make a new temple Because man had tainted it. Man can never keep the laws of God on his own. We always have to have Christ and the Holy Spirit and the power of God to get us through the sin that corrupts our heart. And this is something that they were missing. Now, if we were to look at the story of the cleansing of the temple and we were to ask, well, how can we apply it to our lives? Well, there's a couple of different ways that we can apply this to our life. One is if we are temples of the Holy Spirit and Christ has cleansed us. Reflect back on your life and how that has changed you. How has it changed you since you have come with contact with the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus? Rather, it's in situations, as we said earlier, how you handle them now versus how you would have handled them 10 or 15 years ago. 
or how you go through trials and tribulations in life or just the fact that you can now reflect back on how he was with you and how he is with you. But there's also another aspect to this, something that we can take with us. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us to follow Christ in all ways. But that word follow, it doesn't mean follow like we think. It means to mimic. Mimic Christ in all ways. And there's sometimes, and I'm very guilty of this in my life, we do a disservice to Christ at times. Because when we think about mimicking him, what do we think about? We think about his forgiveness and his empathy and his healing and being there for people and teaching. And in a way, we almost think about his softness. But there's another side to Christ that we're almost scared to mimic at times. His righteous anger, standing strong against those who are doing wrong, standing up for the Holy Spirit when it is being driven out of a place it is intended to be in, having a zeal against sin in your life that is taking you away from him. Are we willing to mimic him in those characteristics as well? Because he is holy at all times. He is fully man and fully God. Every single situation he came into, he handled perfectly and properly. And he is just as holy in this moment when he is cleansing the temple and when he is talking with his disciples as he is when he is on the cross. Because he is holy and he is to be mimicked in all ways and he is not weak. There is no weakness in him. Sometimes the world looks at us and they look at how we act. Well, he'll forgive me. He'll forgive me. He's got to. And we do the same things they do, but we act as if we're better because we can just get absolved of them. Like we can swipe our card and it all goes away. But in Revelations 2.18, John states the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. He has eyes like a flame of fire. That is what John was seeing in this vision when he was envisioning him. He is not soft. He is not weak. He is not a God that is to be trifled with. And sometimes we take advantage of the cross. I did that all the time when I was younger and when I was partying and doing stupid things that I shouldn't have. You just wake up the next day and drink a water and I'll never do that again, God. Just get this headache to go away. And then you do it again three days later because that's almost how we are taught is that. We can constantly keep running to him and we never have to break the cycle. But this is a heart issue. The spirit of God was not in that place and it angered him and it should anger us. Do we copy the zeal for the spirit to indwell the temple that Christ Jesus had when he was there cleansing it? Think about everything going on in that temple. Were they making the proper sacrifices? Of course they were. Were they at the right place? Of course they were. Were they doing it during the right time and the right festival in the right way? Of course they were. But the Spirit of God was not in there because man had tainted it, and the heart behind their actions was not proper. And it angered him because he was not there as he should be. And the modern church is the same way. We, we do things, we have our groups, and we meet on these nights, and we go out, and we do all these different community activities, and we do all these things in the name of the Lord, but we almost do them because they're tradition or because it's what you do when you're part of a church, not because we're trying to further his kingdom and bring the Spirit to indwell inside of the temple. And that is something that makes you reflect on Matthew 7 when it says that I cast out demons and all these things in these in your name, and Christ tells them, I never knew you, depart from me. Actions are never, ever enough. It is always the heart behind it and why you are doing it. And that is what made, temp- made Christ drive them out of the temple was their heart. Now we have to ask ourselves, 
Are you willing to look at sin with the same anger that the Lord has? Are you willing to pray as David did in Psalm 139? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If there is a sin in your life, and there is in all of ours that we struggle with, but particularly if there is one that is driving a wedge between you and God, making it to where it's hard to function in your Christian life, are you willing to face it, to bring it before him, and to be cleansed with it? And are you willing to have a detest for that sin, absolutely detest it as he did? You know, we talked about looking at things on your phone or on your computer that you shouldn't. Well, fine. Are you willing to be humble and go before your wife or your husband and say, hey, I can't stop this. We may need to talk to our carrier about getting me a flip phone for a few months so I can get this to quit. And maybe it's not porn. Maybe it's just Facebook. Maybe you say, I can't quit getting on here and feeling bad about my life or feeling jealous of others or gossiping about others. I need a flip phone just so I can get away from it. Are you willing to do that? If you have a problem with alcohol, and I talked about how I did several years ago, are you willing to have an absolute detest for that? Not only to ask Christ to remove it from you, but to face it as well. To, it's not just enough to throw away all the alcohol and the beer that's in your house. If you can't fire up the barbecue grill without having one or six, then you need to empty the propane tank and throw the brats away and not grill for a couple of years until it goes away. If you can't go fishing and be out on a boat without feeling like you've got to have five or ten, then tell your friends you can't go fishing for a while. You've got to have a detest for anything that pulls you away from a proper relationship with Christ. And you have to face it with him. If you try to fix it on your own for the sake of making yourself a better person, trust me, you will relapse every single time. You have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit with a desire to restore the relationship with him as it should be. To restore Eden. And you have to destroy that with him. Now, in conclusion, the question that I would like to leave us with is, are we willing to mimic his detest for the spirit of God to not be indwelling in our sanctuary and in our temple? If there is anything that is pulling us as a church or us in our lives away from the spirit of God and dwelling within us, are we willing to face that? Are we willing to bring it before Christ and allow ourselves to be cleansed? no matter if it is in love or it is in wrath. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for all things, and we thank you for what you do for us, whether it is known or unknown or realized later. We pray, Lord, that your spirit come within this place, that it can dwell within us as a body and us as individuals. If there is a sin in our life that we need to be cleansed of, may we have the courage to come before you with it, and maybe come before a brother or sister as well and ask for prayer. We pray that you continue to guide us in the days ahead. We thank you for your example of how to live. We pray that you give us the courage and the strength to mimic you in all ways, Lord. May we always look at your life and understand your love and all that you've done for us. Amen.